Well, good morning, church. Hello, thank you all so much for being here. It is such a joy to be here with you this morning on this Advent Sunday. Uh, we, as you know, are transitioning to uh, following the Revised Common Lectionary, at least for a time. And uh, the lectionary is a series of readings that is uh, corresponding to the church calendar, the Christian year. And so in case you didn't know, Advent is actually the season that begins the Christian year. And so the first Sunday of Advent is actually kind of like New Year's Day uh, for the Christian calendar. And so I'm just so excited. Thank you, Kathleen, uh, just for the beautiful decorations. And the atmosphere and the time takes on a different quality, I'd say, during this season. Um, so before I say a few words about the readings and then about the reading on which the sermon is based, I'd like to read some words to kind of orient you all to the season of Advent. This is a book of poetry by Malcolm Geit, uh, who is a, a poet, a theologian, songwriter, and a chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge. Uh, and I'd like to read uh, from the, the blurb on the back introducing his book to kind of orient you to this season. <clears throat> he says, Advent is a season of waiting and anticipation, in which the waiting itself is strangely rich and fulfilling. Its focus is on the coming of Christ, in humility in the manger at Bethlehem, in majesty as the fulfillment and finality of all things, and in countless moments of encounter and transformation in the time between those two great comings in which we live. The other sense we have of the word advent is in the word adventure. Let us take the adventure that God sends us recognizing that the God in whom we live and move and have our being may come and meet us when and where he pleases. So as Mike said, uh, we have heard three readings thus far from the Revised Common Lectionary, and I'm about to read the fourth reading in Isaiah. Hannah opened the service with a reading from Psalm 122, a hymn of praise for Jerusalem, the city of God in which the psalmist writes, Praise God for Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, O Jerusalem. Then we moved into Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, where the apostle writes to the believers at Rome, Wake up! Wake up! Live deliberately! Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we moved to the Gospel of Matthew, in which Jesus, Matthew 24, says to his disciples, Be ready, be ready, for the Lord, the Master, will come at an hour you do not expect. Now, if you look in your bulletin, um, at the top of the order of service, you'll see a brief sentence, a kind of thematic sentence that is meant to connect all the lectionary readings for this morning. I did not come up with that sentence. I actually took it from the Abingdon Theological Companion to the lectionary. But the sentence is, the coming one awakens us. The idea is that while darkness, violence, pain may visit us without warning, God and his salvation also arrive without prior notice. This Advent season, and I quote, let us wake up and declare the assurance that we always live close to what saves us. So in just a minute, I'm going to read our fourth uh, scripture reading for this morning, but before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? 
Father God, we are so grateful for your invitation to come. To come and walk in your light as the days get shorter and shorter, as our world gets darker and darker, to come to this place and to taste the light, the radiance of the coming one, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, would you come this morning? Would you be ever coming and never going, Lord? Comfort us, warm us, stimulate us with your presence as we explore this remarkable text of Scripture this morning. May you be glorified through our worship of you today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, the passage that we're going to look at comes from the prophet Isaiah, and we have not been in a series in Isaiah, we've actually been in the New Testament and Acts and the letters of Paul, and so let me just say a few words to orient us to the writings of Isaiah. Isaiah, the son of Amos, is living in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, uh, in the 7th and 8th centuries BCE, and so David had long since established the kingdom in Israel, and even his son Solomon had carried on his purposes. But then we see that the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. Now, even years after this, we see threatening uh, foreign nations such as the Assyrians, the Akkadians, and then later the Babylonians, Persians, etc., threatening Israel, and as we'll see, one by one, occupying Israel. The people of Assyria, the the nation to the east, uh, had invaded Israel at about 720 BCE. Now Isaiah, it seems, is writing right around the 740 to 700 range. And so he's writing before the invasion of the Assyrians, during the invasion, and after the invasion. But he is living in the southern kingdom. And he's prophesying, writing to those in power in Jerusalem, but amidst this political and national turmoil uh, in which they are being threatened by foreign powers. So Isaiah is, is prophesying primarily against the corruption, the idolatry, the, the faithlessness of the leaders in Judea in the south. He's urging them to turn back to the Lord, And he pronounces judgment, many oracles of judgment, but also offers glimpses of hope. Hope. Now, the the genre that is prophecy is often interpreted as prediction, as simply predicting future events. Now, sometimes that is what prophecy does, where a prophet will forecast things that would happen in the future, and you can tell if a prophet's true or false by whether or not those things happen. But prophecy, like apocalyptic literature really is meant to disclose God's perspective on reality, to unveil a kind of heavenly appraisal of earthly situations and events. And now God exists essentially outside of time, and so often this this will of God, this mentality, this dream, this perspective is a future event for us. But the idea is that Isaiah is presenting to us the vision of God as God sees it. 
Something that is so sure and certain that it ought to change the way we live right now. Prophecy then, like the writings of Paul, is is meant to elicit a change of life right now. It's not simply to give us information about what would happen in the future, but it's meant to stimulate us, to move us to repentance. That's what it's supposed to do. Now, the chapter just before our passage, Isaiah 1, consists of words against Judah and Jerusalem. Like I said, they had forsaken the Lord uh, by becoming blended with the politics, the economics, the values of these foreign powers. And then the passage after ours, 2, 6 through 22, continues that train of thought. The Lord says that he's against all that is proud and lofty. And God's wrath here is directed at the people of God, at the Israelites, and is meant to purge them of evil and restore them to what they once were. So I say that because Isaiah 131 could move directly to Isaiah 2.6 with no interruption, seamless flow of thought. Our passage then, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, comes as a kind of detour as an unexpected, surprising twist in between these oracles of judgment that seems to provide glimpses of hope, of hope. So, friends, our fourth and final reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. And so I invite you now to turn there with me. I'll be reading from the ESV, and so you can... Take one of the pew Bibles in front of you, those are ESV, and follow along with me. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Oh, House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You may be seated. What I plan to do in the next few minutes is walk us through this beautiful example of Hebrew poetry, pulling out the images, the figures of speech, the parallelism, helping us see this clearly as it is in Scripture. Then I want to ask, what might this have meant to its original auditors or readers in the 7th or 6th century? What did ancient Israelites think when they heard this passage? 
But then what I want to do, with an eye toward Paul's words in 2 Timothy, all of Scripture is invaluable to us as believers, I want to ask what might this mean for us as mostly Gentile Christians in the 21st century? And then I will offer some words of hope and application before we close. So that's my plan. So let's dive in then at Isaiah 2, verse 1. What we read, and I tried to emphasize this in the reading, is the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. The verb in Hebrew is the verb to see, visual, to perceive. But the first word in this verse is word. Or maybe you could translate matter, idea, thing. The idea is that God isn't dictating word for word what we see printed here. But rather, like I said before, God is conveying a vision, a perspective of reality to Isaiah. That the skillful prophet then transposes into beautiful Hebrew poetry to try to capture what it is that God is showing him. I think it's important for us to see that with Isaiah here, this is a vision. These are not simply words, two-dimensional content. This is a picture. This is something God is seeing that he's conveying to us. It says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this uh, word translated concerning is a preposition in Hebrew, al, and sometimes that preposition is translated against. Often in the book of Isaiah, it's the word against Judah and Jerusalem, and we would expect such a translation after reading chapter 1. But here, it's the same word, and it seems to uh, possess a positive or at least a neutral meaning. One would expect that Isaiah is about to provide another vision of judgment against God's people. But what we'll see is not a vision of judgment per se, but rather a glimpse of hope. Hope. Verses 2 through 4, then, really provide the the main content of the vision. So verse 1 introduces it. Verses 2 through 4 provide the vision. And then we'll see verse 5 is a charge to God's people. The vision opens with these words. And it shall happen in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be fixed, firmly established as the head, the the chief, the the leader of, of the mountains. And it will be lifted up, lifted up high above all the hills. So first, it shall happen in the latter days. This verb, it shall happen, is kind of like a bird's eye view of the situation. This is the, what we call a perfect aspect verb in Hebrew. And so imagine a parade. Imagine you're, you're on the street watching the parade unfold float by float, progressive, it's moving, you're zoomed in. Or you're up in a plane. And you see the whole parade at once. It's moving, it's progressing, but you can see the entire thing. The verb here is this latter perspective, a bird's eye perspective. 
as though God is conveying this totalizing, comprehensive vision from, from above, as it were. It shall happen in the latter days. Now, this phrase often connotes God's time, not our time. The idea isn't that you can just check the boxes on your calendar until this would happen. The, the latter days language in, in the prophets really is that God will bring this about. Th- this sort of reality exists on God's terms, in God's time. And so the stress, the emphasis is that this is something that God sees, that that is his will to exist and that he will bring about in the latter days. It says, the mountain of the house of the Lord. You can think here of the mountain in Jerusalem on which the temple sat, often called Mount Zion. This mountain of the house of the Lord, the temple is referred to as God's house, shall be firmly fixed. The idea is that of stability, longevity, impenetrability. You can think of Psalm 122 talking about Jerusalem with its firm walls, secure. It shall be firmly fixed as the head of all the other mountains. This makes me think of Joseph in the book of Genesis who has these dreams of being above his brothers, this language of height. For a mountain, which symbolizes God's presence, Mount Zion, to be above all of the neighboring mountains is to say that Israel as a nation, as a people, would be preeminent in the Near East, above the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, etc. It says it shall be firmly fixed as the head, the leader of all the mountains in that region, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. What is striking here is that we have multiple passive verbs. It shall be firmly fixed, it shall be lifted up. No explicit subject is provided for us. Now, this is rather common in the prophets of the Old Testament. The reader is encouraged to supply the subject. Who is doing this, fixing, this lifting? It seems to me it is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, moving on then to the end of verse 2, it says, This mountain of God shall be lifted up, fixed as the head of all the mountains, with the result that all the nations, the the goyim in Hebrew, the the Gentiles, all the nations, the non-Israelite foreign nations, shall turbulently stream toward the city like a river. The verb is from the same root as the word river or stream. Think of gravitational force, waters moving relentlessly, inevitably. The peoples from all over are moving like a river to the radiant, glorified city of Yahweh. This is a vision of God. We don't know when this would happen in this reality, but this is fixed, this is sure, this is certain. And Isaiah is conveying this to us in beautiful language. Moving on to verse 3, it says that these nations, these Gentiles who stream to the city of God will come. It says many peoples, that's set in parallel to all the nations, many peoples shall come and say, come. 
looking to each other, they will say, come, encouraging participation and involvement, come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The language of going up the mountain of the Lord makes me think of Moses going up the mountain, not Zion, but Sinai, to receive the law. It makes me think of Abraham going up the mountain, the same mountain that would become Mount Zion, to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It makes me think of David and the psalmists who say, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord to worship. But the twist here, friends, is that Gentiles are saying this. They're streaming to the city of God in Jerusalem, and they can't wait to go up the hill to worship Yahweh, to receive instruction, to experience His presence. Imagine how this would have sounded to the religious leaders in Jerusalem at this time. After this, it says, after let us go up to the mountain, the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is a character in Genesis, hundreds of years before the events here. But Jacob is the the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, to whom God promised, you shall be the father of many nations. His name literally means that. The descendants of Abraham were always meant to be a light to the Gentiles, a city set on a hill, attracting the foreign nations like a lamp attracts bugs in the summer. The mention of Jacob here harkens back, I think, to these pre-political, pre-national promises to Abraham that God's people, Israel, would always, were always meant to be a light to all the nations. These Gentile non-Israelites then say, let us go to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he might teach us from his ways and that we might walk in his paths. The mountain is associated with the law of God, with Moses, and here it is associated with God's instruction. The nations are streaming to the city that they might, it seems, worship God, but also that they might learn from him, learn from his ways, walk in his paths. They go there because, it says, from Zion, the Torah shall issue forth or emerge. Not to keep connecting with other passages, but I can't help but think of Ezekiel, another prophet who sees the vision of a new temple, and from the temple there gushes forth this river of life, this life-giving water, which is meant to connect, I think, to Eden the garden of God, in the same way from the new Jerusalem here, the Torah gushes forth like a river. So as the nations are streaming toward it like a river, the law of God, God's worldview, God's vision, His values gush forth, drenching the nations. It says that the Torah shall issue forth from the city of God, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, in tight parallel. In verse 4, then, Isaiah goes on and says that he will judge between the nations. It seems that the he here is the God of Jacob. 
In this new Jerusalem, God himself will judge between the nations. He will govern the city. He will rule. And he will decide disputes for many peoples. These phrases, as always in Hebrew poetry, are set in parallel. But the idea is that God himself would act as judge, mayor, ruler, and that he would decide disputes between the peoples, between the nations. And as a result, friends, of God's direct leadership, political, religious, all of it connected, as a result, it says, they will grind their swords into farm tools. They will grind their swords into plows, and they will melt their, their spears into pruning snips. The nations will do away with all of their weapons of death and will convert them into tools of life as a result of God's leadership. It says that nation will no longer lift up sword against nation. They won't even teach their young war anymore. There will be no need of weapons, no need of military instruction for peace will reign in the city of God. This is the vision Isaiah describes to his original readers and listeners. And then he looks right in their face, eye to eye, and he says, House of Jacob. Direct address. House of Jacob. Come. The same word that the nations say to each other, Come, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. He urges them to keep this vision firmly fixed in their minds, a vision that may be far from reality at that time. But he he exhorts them to, to enter into this space, to live as though this reality were already true, to come and walk in the light of the Lord. So let me just ask, writing in the 8th, 7th century, How do you think Isaiah's original audience would have heard these words? They had been promised certain things by God, a kingdom, many nations, supremacy in the world, and they're being oppressed and harassed by foreign nations. It's likely that they had in mind an actual time or period in the near future in which Jerusalem, the political capital of Israel, would be firmly fixed? Or somehow God himself would reign, perhaps in the form of a Messiah? And that all the nations would stream to them and there would be peace. That, I think, is what they were hoping for. And that message is positive and is meant to move those Israelites to repent of their their faithless ways, and to live as though those realities were certain. But as we see in Paul's second letter to Timothy, all of Scripture, in that context, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we just read, are an invaluable resource for Christians, for believers. They're invaluable because they can lead you to salvation. They're full of divine life. They're helpful in the difficult tasks of ministry, and they complete 
the people of God. But they can only do this, Paul says, if they are read backwards through the lens of Jesus Christ. Only if these texts are read through the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ can they do those things to us. So we read here of the mountain of the house of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, Zion, Jerusalem. And and what are we to think of such language? For for us Christians today in the 21st century, not in the Near East, but in, in the West, is this only meant to be a physical, literal place, city or nation, as was perceived by the original hearers? If you turn to the New Testament, and I'll, I'll summarize these, we don't have time to get into them, we, we see that Christ is said in John's Gospel to draw all people to Himself. Christ is said to be a light in the darkness. It says that Christ would be lifted up, literally says this in John 12, He would be lifted up and he would ascend above all others in his ascension to heaven in the book of Acts. We move on to passages about believers, about the church. They're spoken of as a light, the light of the world, a city on a hill, Matthew 5. Paul repeatedly describes believers as God's temple, the house of the Lord. And in Revelation 21... We read about the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, which is also called the Bride of Christ. I think we are authorized, friends, by Scripture to read Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 as referring also, also to Christ and His church. What this means is that, in a sense, We are the high mountain, the radiant temple, the city where God himself dwells. It means that we are the place to which all the nations stream to learn God's ways and to walk in his paths. It means really that we are that long-awaited kingdom in which God reigns and peace reigns with Him. And how can we be such a place, you might ask? This small, broken, modest church. How can we be all that you've said we are? Because Jesus Christ is here. He's here. Because of this, I say to you, friends, come, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. No matter how bleak things get, come. No matter how tired you feel, come. No matter how hopeless it all feels sometimes, come. God is not done with us yet. Let's pray. Lord, we need you desperately. You are so gracious to give us this vision in terms that we can understand, 
in terms not only cognitive, but affective, emotional, terms that move us to imagine new possibilities. We are so grateful, Lord, that you stoop to our level to convey this truth to us. We pray, Jesus, that this Advent season, that we would adventure with you into new and unwritten realities. Do a miracle in and through us as we await the light in the darkness, the coming one, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would comfort us and make us feel like this kingdom this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.